Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What have you not? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to one field and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Omar David and Ken Erdy here. Owen, how are you doing? Good I'm to see you. good. I'm going to throw a few names at you, Ken. Yeah. Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Britney Spears. Uh huh. Drew Barrymore. All very successful uh, entertainment professionals. Ultimately, yes, Ken. But. Also, child stars who found that fame and fortune at too young an age stunted their emotional growth. Um, Maybe they didn't find that, but people say that <laughs> and project that onto them. Was well, this because Macaulay Culkin um, was, was driving a car to Texas or something and, with a bag of weed? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I haven't heard much about, I haven't heard much about him, actually. I mean, Drew, Bar- Drew Barrymore said quite a Who's the other one? Britney Spears. I mean, they've been mega successful oh, yeah, they've had issues I mean well Drew Barrymore had a lot of her issues a long time ago she's reinvented mm. herself many years ago she's, uh, Brittany, she's like Meryl Streep Brittany now. I don't know how's Brittany doing now I haven't heard Brittany strikes me she's you could describe Brittany as troubled Ken certainly all the there was a time she shaved her head it's always taken as a as a sign of something it's the worst thing that a woman can possibly do yeah. in the uh, celebrity <laughs> world is yeah. shave their hair off but the reason I bring this up, Ken, it's the same sort of uh, scenario that be- essentially becoming a Premier League manager at any age, I believe, prevents a man from evolving any further as an emotional being. <laughs> doesn't matter if you're a relatively young manager when you hit the Premier League, you could be a little bit older. You will ultimately end up pushing and shoving another grown man because he's encroaching in something called your technical area. Yeah. That's what it does to people. Well, that's his territory. I mean, it is, I suppose the human being is a territorial species. Um we, we like to have our own patch. We don't like to see... And in the case of um, Jose Mourinho's technical area, it is clearly delineated. Mm. I mean, the borders are drawn there on the turf. He's, he's not necessarily one to respect the borders um, when he, he himself feels like, uh, uh, you know, what's the word, trespassing outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he will allow himself to do that. But if, if Arsene Wenger wants to invade, then that's a very different uh, situation. We'll talk a lot about Chelsea today. We're also going to chat about Russia 2018. Why are we talking about this? Yeah, well, Russia 2018, Owen, is just around the corner. And, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's, it's to do with the, it's this whole idea of these mega events having um, taken on such stupendous proportions. I mean, there is an interesting situation happening at the moment with the Winter Olympics, um, where uh, Norway has pulled out of the running to stage, the, I think, 2022 Winter Olympics, and uh, leaving uh, Kazakhstan, I believe, is the only country who's up for it. <laughs> uh, and the IOC is is now faced with the situation. Norway essentially said, "Well, this is ridiculous. The amount of money you're talking about for staging this, we're not interested anymore." I mean, Sochi was the last one, fifty billion dollars that ended up costing. The IOC is now kind of scratching its head, thinking, "Have we backed ourselves into a corner whereby the only countries that can actually take on our events are the type of countries where you can spend a ridiculously excessive amount of money on a sporting event without worrying about?" A revolution in the streets, you know, primarily because, uh, you know, you trust your security forces to be able to keep a lid on that one. Is that what we've done? Is that really what the Olympic movement has become? In the case of the World Cup, it's a little bit different, Um, uh, although not all that different. Um, Essentially, 
that the World Cup is going to happen in Russia in 2018, if it follows the path taken by Sochi, which ended up costing more than four times as much as the original um, uh, estimate, mm-hmm. it will be. It has a chance of becoming the first hundred billion dollar uh, tournament. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that and, and what the impact of that might be if if it, if it happens to get out of control in the same way. Let's get into Kennedy's report on sport. So we were talking about. Um, Jose Mourinho's territorial instinct. Yeah. He's a man who's always defended his home patch. Uh, once spent 10 years without losing a home game. Um, never lost a game against Arsene Wenger, home or away. Uh, it was this, more of the same uh, the other day. And Chelsea uh, continue this amazing run that they've had, um, well clear at the top of the table. And the idea is clearly to win this league, to win this league in the first half of the league. If you get far enough ahead early on, everybody else gives up. Jose Mourinho has been there before. He knows how it works. He knows that he can always get a team to win its next game. He's good at that. And it's especially he finds it especially easy to do that when his team is already in the leading position. Chasing, he has a tendency, I think, as we saw last season, to get a little bit fatalistic. A little bit, oh, we can't, we can't possibly do anything here. Our hands are tied. But once he's ahead, he knows he knows how to handle it's that situation. It's Tiger Woods. It's 100% the way Tiger Woods. But every one of his major victories, hasn't he? Yeah, he's never come from behind to win a major. Really? He's always been ahead. And when he's been ahead, he's always he had always won up until that one he lost just before, just around the time he started really breaking down. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, that's exactly the way. He, I get the feeling with Mourinho's, if Mourinho was to actually have a, a dramatic come from behind uh, league title win, it would almost... Um, mess up all all his own narratives about what's actually going on. Because, obviously, the reason why he's behind in the first place only ever has to do with outside factors which have conspired against him. Uh, factors which can't be overcome. Not by him, not by anyone. And so if he was to do that, he would, in a way, make a liar of himself. Uh, you know, I don't know if this situation is ever going to happen. I mean, last season, it almost seemed he was saying, well, look, you know, what can we do? First of all, my team are all children. Secondly, I've got Fernando Torres. Um... You know, thirdly, there's all these uh, reds in the media, not many blues. Reason after reason as to why he wasn't going to be able to catch up and and overtake. Um, But, you know, at the moment, this is the kind of situation he likes well out in front. And it's interesting when you look at Chelsea uh, that seven of their or nine of their players have actually started in every league game. You know, um, there's a huge... uh, there's kind of a core in the Chelsea squad, uh, and then you've got the likes of Sherla. Uh, the players who start every game are Ivanovic, Fabregas, Hazard, Courtois. Courtois, who may have to miss a game, I think, um, because of what we saw yesterday. We'll get to that now. But Diego Costa, uh, Nemanja Matic, Gary Cahill, and John Terry, and Aspilicueta. So nine players started every league match. You might think, well, everybody else talks about squad rotation. Yeah. Chelsea, it's not like Chelsea have a small squad. I mean, they've got a lot of players. Uh, Mourinho obviously reckons he doesn't necessarily have to give players games to keep them happy. He can do that in other ways. Um, uh, I mean, that was one of the interesting things in, in Rio Ferdinand's book. I think it, was, it echoed some of the things Gary Neville said about the way Ferguson used to handle squad rotation. Uh, essentially by, rather than telling players, I'm not playing you this weekend, he would say, I'm playing you next weekend. <laughs> I need you to be ready for next weekend because the future of this club, the the whole future of Manchester United depends on you being ready for the for Carling next Cup game against Swansea. Yeah, are you man enough to accept my challenge? And the player would walk out thinking, wow. Uh, whereas apparently Moyes um, would do things like tap Brie on the shoulder and tell him in front of the squad, ah, you're not going to play against Barn. <laughs> no, I don't think, no, I just want just a bit more pace in there. So, yeah. Anyway. Uh, and then, obviously, Rio uh, seething, you know, fuming. Um, Mourinho doesn't need to play players in order to keep them happy. He manages to do this uh, by other means. And we don't really know. We haven't heard uh, from too many of the Chelsea squad players what he does to make them feel special. It could just be that they're scared. I'm not sure if they necessarily want to be mouthing off about their lack of opportunities because he'll crush them. Mm. You know what I mean? So that, that may be the, the uh, simple mechanism. an element of that, yeah. Um, now, of course, he does, uh, but, you know, what, what, is he not going to pay a price for this? You know, you're looking at this, well, are the Chelsea players not going to be tired, out of condition by the time um, by the time we get to the second half of the season, the, the, toward the last third of the season, let's say? And there's a couple of reasons why I don't think this is going to be the case. I mean, number one, maybe you'll start to see a bit more rotation as those games 
are building up in December and uh, January. But by then, Chelsea might be so far ahead that those players who come in are playing under less pressure. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of wiggle room that they'll already have established. Um, there's also the fact that Jose Mourinho doesn't accept injuries. And we saw this yesterday with Thibaut Courtois. Courtois was knocked out by Alexis Sanchez and stayed on the field for 12 more minutes. This is a manager who doesn't care about injuries. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can deal with injuries. Chelsea obviously have a top-class medical department, albeit one that appeared to drop the ball yesterday. Yeah. Um, I remember when Jose Mourinho was the manager of Inter uh, in 2010. They played Chelsea in the Champions League, and at the time there was a little bit of... um, uh, speculation over whether Petr Cech would be ready to play in, in the in the game. And Mourinho said, of course I think Cech could play. I don't listen to those reports that he's out for a month or more. Dr. Needles can get him healthy enough to play and play well. Dr. Needles? Dr. Needles. Now that's the manager of, then manager of Inter, former manager of Chelsea, current manager of Chelsea, Jose Mourinho talking about Chelsea's medical department, Dr. Needles. Of course, it's a, it's a job. Well, what is a doctor's job? You know, if you were to look at, say, I don't know, the, the Hippocratic Oath, I must say I don't know the Hippocratic Oath, off my own, but it's something along the lines of do no harm, uh, you know, and essentially the message is try to help sick people get better. That's not the way Jose Mourinho looks at a doctor's job at a football club. His job is to get the players on the field. Get them on the field. Yeah. That's your job. You're, I thought you were a doctor. Patch them up, get them on the field. Doctor needles. Needles are one of the tools that a doctor uses one of the tools, the weapons in the doctor's arsenal in getting uh, a player fit. So I think that Jose Mourinho has confidence in his medical department to, to get the players fit enough to play. That doesn't necessarily mean 100% fit. See, there's a difference there. There's a big difference there. And certain managers have this attitude. Jose Mourinho is by no means the only one, but a refusal to indulge players who claim to be injured. It's a case of, really, you're injured? How injured? I mean... This used to be almost a, 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 a more pronounced thing in football when, when people were totally ignorant, especially the players, were totally ignorant about me- medicine and the possible consequences of, I don't know, taking that cortisone injection or playing through that injury. They didn't really know. The managers tell them, go on, son, you'll be okay. And the alternative, obviously, was the manager refused to speak to them at all. You know, just, you know Bill Shankly famously, completely ignoring injured players. Just don't, I don't want to see you. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to any of the other players. I don't want. As I think though, Jose is along those lines as well. He He's is. previously stated that. So even managers in this day and age often mm. just ignore their players. Mourinho is Mourinho is like this because, to a large extent, injuries are a mind over matter thing. The, what's what the question is? How much pain are you prepared to tolerate? Oh yeah, well that, that's simplistic though. You can't play with a ruptured hamstring. No, I mean, that's the kind of injury that even Jose Mourinho would have to accept. But what about a sore hamstring? Diego Costa style? What about a slight sense of dizziness because you maybe were just sort of knocked out but were you really knocked out? Looked a little bit unconscious there. Um, what about that? You know, what about, um, you know, Mourinho's not the only person. I mean, for instance, Jurgen Klopp, the Dortmund manager is another manager who has this attitude. Uh, I mean, I read an interview with him recently where he's saying, yeah, you know, the thing about injuries is that since I was a player, the medicine and the sort of treatment has come on to such a degree that it's almost everything has become pathologized. Uh, When I was playing, we used to get a bang on the leg and we would have a sore leg. Now it's a bone bruise and they need to be out for four weeks. Right. So he's saying, yeah, you know, I, I have the kind of attitude that, look, I expect you to go on, walk onto the field feeling pain, and I expect you to be in more pain when you come off the field. He actually he says in it, I, uh, I I'm particularly skeptical about anything that I understand myself. For instance, I have no idea what heartburn feels like. Apparently, I've never he's never had heartburn, which sounds strange. But, mm. You know, more power to him. Uh, so if someone says to me, "Oh, I've got heartburn," I think, "Oh, you know, that must be terrible. That's uh, that's that sounds awful, heartburn." Uh, whereas if it's, say, someone comes to me and says, I've got an ingrown toenail and it's just split all over the place and become infected. I say, get out there on that field. I played every match of my life with 10 ingrown toenails. You know, <laughs> my, essentially my feet were just this, this uh, spewing, uh, you know, in, engorged with, with pus throughout my entire career. And, and I, I don't have any sympathy for you. Mm. That's football. 
You know what I mean? So Mourinho has this attitude. And you, you, you develop this sort of, I mean, I, I say he has this attitude, and I say the proof of it is what we saw with Courtois yesterday. Are you going to come off? Are you really going to? Oh, Thibaut, you're going to come off, right. Okay, we've got Petter here. He can come on. He's a, he's a very good goalkeeper. You know, Petter's won a lot of league titles with this club. Um, yeah, I could see Petter playing quite a lot of games this season. He's a champion. He's got the right kind of attitude. You know what I mean? If, you, if you're going to come off, you want to be coming off on a stretcher. You know what I mean? In, in that kind of team, with that sort of culture. John Terry, remember, being the captain of this team. A man who literally prides himself. Lampard was there for years. And in one interview, I remember, took his, his shoes off. So the interviewer could, could see how disgusting his feet were from all of the uh, wounds that they'd absorbed that he just played through. Well, whatever, you know, my toes got gangrene. It was falling off. I didn't, I didn't care. You know, because the, mo- the most important thing from, to me is going goes to Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> Can I do that from the bench? Unlikely. Difficult, difficult enough. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem is when it's something like concussion. Uh, it's something that people are becoming more aware, aware of. There's a lot of soccer years. moms at home watching these days. <laughs> a lot of soccer moms, yeah. Um, just on the, the subject of Klopp, uh, mind over matter it may be, but he has a lot of injured players at the moment. And Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund, who we were talking about in glowing terms after they beat Arsenal uh, a few weeks back, have not won a match in the league since. They've lost three out of four including much to Hamburg, who hadn't won a game all season. So things are their title challenge is, is already finished. Mm. They're 10 points behind um, Bayern Munich after seven matches. Right. So they're not going to come back from that. I mean, it's, it's given that Bayern Munich... And the, the painful thing about it may be seeing Robert Lewandowski finally scoring two goals for Bayern, finally playing well for them, um, just as they themselves are, are kind of really struggling to uh, to get things going. I mean... It's uh, it's kind of the worst. It's actually the worst moment that they've had in the league since they started winning it, or or since the first season when they were twenty ten was the first season when they twenty ten twenty eleven when they actually won that title. Um, now they have obviously a problem in that they've got all these. The, the problem is that they've been losing players continually. They keep having to start their team over, uh, and now Royce being the big star, he's also injured at the moment. Um, but how much longer is he going to be there? He shares an agent with Mario Götze, who, whose loyalty to Dortmund wasn't ultimately great. And Tony Kroos, who you know, was quite happy to walk out of Bayern mm. Munich because he's going to get a lot of money at Real Madrid. So what does that tell you about how Royce is going to behave? Mats Hummels, meanwhile, though, is, is giving it the, I'm going to be the new uh, Paolo Maldini slash uh, Francesco Totti slash Steven Gerrard. Um, because it's more exciting and more difficult to win trophies as an underdog. Um, I always judge what gives me the most fun and not where a better or more expensive team is. Um, uh, he's essentially saying he wouldn't move for money. He doesn't care about any of this kind of stuff. He loves playing for Dortmund. He loves the style there. This is the most important thing to him. I just kind of wish that... I wish, first of all, that what he's saying is true and that also that there were maybe just one or two more players like that. Well, it's pretty rare you hear players put... Okay, if you think... He used the word fun there. Let's put fun in as a criterion for choosing which club you want to play for. I would imagine most players would have either trophies or money, number one. And mm. that might be a personal choice. I'm sure there are plenty of players who could be getting more than where they're out of their current club, but maybe they wouldn't have as big a chance of, of winning a trophy. But a lot of people would also probably just go for the highest wage. So you've got one of those two. Fun, the most fun. Certainly l- later on in your career, I would have thought that's... Not particularly relevant. Not relevant later in your career. Yeah, but I would have thought that. Well, I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the sort of uh, dying embers. I'm talking about as you hit your mid late twenties and you're, you're you either want to win, you either want to win stuff yeah. or get paid a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know how much you care about having fun at your club, but that's it. Yeah, I everyone mean, wants to have fun at work, I suppose. Yeah, look, look, Matt Hummels um, maybe isn't going to win the league. This definitely isn't going to win the league this year. Definitely won't get paid as much money as he could get paid. Somewhere else, probably he's never going to join Bayern Munich because he he already was there from for his whole youth career and evidently left because uh, of certain disagreements. So I don't think he's ever going to end up there. Um, but he could be making at least twice, probably three times as much money playing for somebody like Manchester United. And uh, apparently he's prioritising fun above that and his right to do so. Owen, uh, you know, any psychological study will tell you. Not any psychological study, because a lot of them are about different things. But whenever this has been studied, they find that, you know, your happiness will increase up to, I think it's about $60,000. An income of about $60,000 a year. You're happier if you get paid 55000 than if you get paid fifty. 
and you're happier if you get paid 60,000 than if you get paid 55. But if you get paid 65 or 80 or 200, there is no corresponding increase in happiness. Money does not make you happy. The thing about money in football, though, is it's not a question of happiness. I mean, nobody could fit that much happiness into just one human. You know, it's just a way of keeping score against the other players. I mean, it's the reason why Wayne Rooney still has a sort of strut in his step. Because whatever people might say, whatever journalists might, whatever Roy Hodgson might say, I don't know if you saw what Hodgson said about Rooney. Is this about his lack of an ability to lecture? No. Unbelievable. What an incredible thing that Hodgson said. I mean, he, he, Hodgson is talking about oratory, right? Which is, which is dangerous enough ground. Uh, oratory is a much, uh, is a much over-exaggerated quality. He says, there are some people I think are very eloquent who don't get messages across well and others who I don't think you would regard as orators who get their message across very well. Everyone knows Wayne is not the sort of person with his Liverpool accent who's going to be able to stand up in front of a lecture room of people. But he doesn't need to. All he has to do is make certain the players he is talking to understand where he's coming from. Like, the Liverpool accent, they don't... Unbelievable. How could, it's, it's an amazing thing. For, I could not believe when I, when I read that, that Hodgson had actually... He, things just come out of this man. What mouth. you don't want, says Roy Hodgson, is a, uh, a, Liverpool. a Liverpool accent. I mean, who's going to understand that? How can, how can you possibly articulate anything in that accent? <laughs> what you do want is an ability to make references to space monkeys. Yeah. That's what you want. doesn't matter what accent you do it in. Which, I have to say, um, the newspaper articles I've read this in always then make reference to the space monkey. <laughs> do they? Yeah, it's um, a bad sign. It's a bad sign for Roy Hodgson that now every, with every little gaffe, uh, the papers make sure to enumerate the previous ones, just in case anyone's... As do I, yeah. In case anyone's forgotten. He also upset the mayor of Manaus on the eve of the World <laughs> Cup draw, saying the Brazilian city was, quote, the venue to be avoided. In 2012, he apologised after letting slip to a passenger on the tube that he left Rio Ferdinand out of the next England squad. Uh, something Rio Ferdinand actually was incredibly angry with, uh, going by his uh, his recent book. Just the, the point is that money, anyway, is, is, a, is football's way of seeing who's the top dog. Yeah. So they're after a kind of status... It's it's just um, an expression of something else. But sorry, Jan. no, you were talking about Hummels being a former Bayern Munich player. You wanted to talk a little bit about well, when, fans booing their former. Teammates? Just <laughs> there was a piece about this. I mean, it, it arose out of the Fabregas thing. Fabregas got a bit few half-hearted boos from the Arsenal players. Uh, Sean Arsenal Ingle, supporters. Arsenal supporters, I should say. I, I doubt the players were were booing uh, Fabregas. Although Welbeck did clean him out. Um. I wasn't really surprised that Arsenal were a little bit tougher with Welbeck and Sanchez in the team. I mean, it didn't really work out. Obviously, it was it was the same outcome, effectively, as 6-0, 2-0, 6-0, same number of points. Mm. But they were a little bit tougher. You know, obviously, it wasn't as one-sided a match. It wasn't as embarrassing a match from Arsenal's point of view. Um, but when you've got players like Sanchez and Welbeck, I think it does give you a little bit more... Um, uh, impetus. I think the problem really is this underpowered midfield that they have. It just couldn't 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 match up to the, the opposition. Have Fabregas and Nemanja Matic, and you've got Flamini. Flamini, you know, Flam- when Flamini in, in the 2007-2008 season was fantastic. I mean, he was covering more ground than everybody. He was just launching into people. It was he was a tough guy to come up against. He's he's totally past it now. I mean, you saw him with the Fabregas uh, assist yesterday for Costa. Flamini's supposed to get up in, in, in Fabregas's face. You can't give him time. It's the one thing. If you, if, you, if you give Fabregas, if you let Fabregas stand there, look up, and nobody challenges him, the ball is going to go exactly where he wants it to go. Unless there's somebody trying to get in his face, that's, that's what's going to happen with Fabregas. And Flamini was too tired to do it. You know, that's the... I think it, it cost Arsenal. Anyway, um, two, uh, two contrasting things happened over the last few days. Uh, involving some superstar strikers who hadn't scored goals. We talked about Brendan Rodgers uh, on Thursday's podcast. Um, he actually had, it turned out, made some further comments, which only came out uh, on the Friday about Balotelli, uh, saying things like, Balotelli was uh, some, something we had to work with, you know, at this time. He's saying, you know, we got Divock Origi from the world-class player. Oh, he's, you know, he's going to be some player when he gets here. Um, you know, but Balotelli was was kind of the best we could get. So yeah, it's crazy stuff. It was I thought incredibly disparaging of Balotelli, and presumably deliberately so. Hmm. 
Uh, well, he, I mean, he, he knew what he was saying. I mean, whether whether there's a little bit of politics going on there, you know, as the, we know, Liverpool having have, a go with the board, kind of thing. Liverpool have a transfer committee. No one individual is responsible for transfers. Maybe Rogers is firing a shot across the bows of whoever he thinks is responsible for lumbering him with Balotelli, or maybe he's maybe he thinks that this is a way to manage the player in terms of maybe maybe if I sting him a little bit, I'll get some response. I mean, that's, I'm trying to, these are the possibilities. These are the possibilities, you know. Uh, I saw that Louis van Gaal took quite a different approach when Falcao, who hadn't scored, scored. Um, and he said, first of all, yeah, he needed that. I could see that he was really forcing himself, you know, he was getting anxious, he hadn't scored. I just told him, look, I'm really happy with how you're playing, don't worry, because you're going to score. The goal is going to come for you. And did. So, well done. Which maybe is patting himself on the back a bit. I don't. I don't know. But it strikes me that what he was doing there was uh, was sort of supporting his player, as opposed to what Rogers is doing, which, in the most general, generous possible interpretation, is challenging the player, challenging yeah. challenging the player in public. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I recall the last time Liverpool played at Basel uh, was two thousand and two. Steven Gerrard had a terrible game, was taken off at halftime. And Stephen Gerrard, or Gerard Houdier, came to him afterwards in the media saying, he's, you know, sometimes players read what's written about them and their heads get all out of size, you know, and this guy, you know, needs to really pull the socks up and all this kind of stuff. It was strong enough stuff, mm. but let's say the, the reaction of Stephen Gerrard was not to say, you know, I see the managers, uh, I see the managers crack the whip a little bit there, you know, I'd better knuckle down. It was uh, a, a complete... I'm not going to say breakdown. Breakdown would be the wrong word, but it was a rage. He reacted with rage to Jared. He considered himself to have been betrayed um, by by what he had said. You know why? Why does he do this in public? His reaction was not good. Maybe Balotelli is, has a different reaction. But meanwhile, Rogers is, was laying on the praise a little bit thicker uh, for Stephen Jared. Actually, <laughs> he says. Uh, the guy's world class. I think for anyone playing alongside Stephen Jared, it's a privilege for them. Um, because he, he put Jared up kind of uh, behind Balotelli for the, for the last 15 minutes of the match. Uh, and Jared played a couple of nice passes and so on. Rogers says, if I was to be asked about the profession of football and to define a footballer, I would say Steven Gerrard in every capacity. Uh, how he trains, how he works, how he handles the media, the respect he shows for a manager, how he performs, his humility in everything he does is incredible, really. Uh, and then explained how he had come up with the idea of moving Jared up front uh, I thought he was brilliant. Uh, that's why I did it. I, I, I felt he could add something to our game. It's just a feeling in the game you get as a coach and a manager. I never came into the game thinking that was what I was going to do. But see the game develop. There's some things you do that you plan in your mind, but there are some intuitive things that can help the team. I felt it freshened up and brightened up the game for us. So uh, it was a good job by both of them. I like a very quick word in the Arden squad. Some withdrawals. Shea Given is out of there. Shea Given's apparently Seamus the Coleman, James McCarthy. I mean, basically, the two best outfield players um, are going to miss these games, which is terrible. Now, I think, in a sense, you know, there's one school of thought that says, "Well, we're going to get three points from these games." Oh, we're going to—it's our easiest and our hardest game. Mm. So, therefore, maybe they're the two to miss. But I don't think the Germany game is the one for these players to miss. I really wish they could play. I mean, you know, obviously, the likelihood is we're going to lose in Germany. But I saw the Scotland Germany game. And that was a close. That was a close thing, you know. It was two one in the end to, to Germany, but it was uh, it was not a comfortable win. Um, with McCarthy, with Coleman, those players at top form, they improve our side hugely. Um, without them, it's going to be a lot more difficult. I mean, we're going to be covering obviously the Ireland stuff this week. The the, fir- the it sort of kicks off tomorrow. Uh, the games on Saturday and obviously Tuesday. The Roy Keane book is out oh, yeah. on Thursday, so our podcast on Thursday is going to be a little bit late. Because we're going to have to wait around to uh, hear what Roy Keane has to it's say. It's a mid-afternoon press conference. Yeah, and so we'll have it. We'll have it out after that. But um, I imagine well, the next we'll, podcast yeah. we do is going to have quite a lot of content on the Ireland team and on Roy Keane's. And book. I'll tell you what we'll do on Thursday. We'll do a little bit of reading of the book in the morning. Yeah, have something to say about it for the first show for mm. our all sports show. Mm. Go to the press conference, see what Roy Keane has to say himself, and then come back and talk about that. So I would say both shows might be Roy Keane specials in their own way. Could be, yeah. That's the end of Ken Hurdy's Report on Sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. But I've traveled alone.
second cap, first cap, whatever. Richie Sadler is here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. ESPN's John Broom is ready to talk to us, John, about the Chelsea game. And uh, I just want to start with the... I suppose it's, it's been a bone of contention that people have with Mourinho over the years, how he stifles creativity. But in the case of the guys he has out there at the moment, Hazard had a great game, Fabregas was really good, Oscar... OK, well, maybe, maybe Oscar hasn't developed into the, uh, as brilliant a creative player as people would have hoped, but he is doing the work for Mourinho. Has he got these creative guys playing very well? Yes, yes, he does. And he, he has his players... He has th- those players playing better than any of his rivals do. So, um, I mean, Hazard, when he's in full flight, is unstoppable. Well, unless you kick him over, as happened with Lanka Chelny. Um And Oscar, I mean, Oscar is a player that I find difficult to really warm to because I, I often think he should be better than he actually is but he suits Mourinho's plan because Mourinho likes a player that can put a tackle in um, now Juan Mata wasn't that player uh, but Oscar I mean I remember I think it was Pat Nevin saying that he thinks he's the best tackler in English football now I'm not so quite sure about that but there's certainly he, he does close down the space of the opposition's midfield um, and in Fabregas You've got a player who's pretty much a Rolls-Royce of a midfielder, haven't you? Especially in English football. It suits him much better than it did playing over in Spain. Um, and you do have to wonder about Arsenal's... I don't know if it was a refusal or their laxity in not trying to tempt him back to Arsenal. Um, I think the story is probably that he wouldn't have gone back there anyway. But... Um, he does look the player that Arsenal probably lack in midfield because he can mix it, he's creative, um, and most of all, he's a top, top quality player. There's so many stories about this Fabregas thing, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, on the one hand, you've got Fabregas saying that Arsenal did have the option to take him, and then you've got Arsenal Wenger the other day saying, well, I thought this deal taking him to Chelsea was done in January. I, I kind of didn't want to interfere. It seemed like it had all been done. Um I'm not quite sure. I mean, what do you think actually happened here? Is it is it quite simply the case Arsenal had the chance to sign him, the, you know, in, in contractual terms? They they had first refusal, but didn't want to. I think that's the more more likely explanation. I think I think Wenger was probably being a, trying to suggest that the deal was done um, out of you know behind behind the scenes, out of um, turn. Yes, I mean, Mourinho said, didn't he, say, oh, yeah, we got the deal done very, very quickly, which, a few alarm bells there. I mean, there, there was a point, uh, maybe a year ago, when, well, remember, the, the Fabregas was linked to Manchester United during the summer of 2013. Now, a few people at the time said that surely he would go back to Arsenal because there was this buyback clause. But at the time, I mean, I was told that Fabregas and Wenger had not been getting on well towards the end of Fabregas' time at Arsenal, so it was always unlikely. Now it seems to be a bed of roses between them, and uh, you know, the, 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 even the word love has been used. In fact. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't think that Fabregas was ever likely to go back to Arsenal. And I mean, actually, if you look at it, why would I, why would Fabregas go to Arsenal? Because they're a team that is not going to challenge for the honours that a player of that quality. Should would feel that he should be challenging for maybe, but if they had first refusal and that's what his contract said, then then he'd be he'd be going back to Arsenal, would he not? I mean, I, just just on the point that you were making there, though, the, this it, it does seem reasonable enough that maybe himself and Wenger weren't getting on that well towards the end, and and if they had been, maybe Wenger would have tried to would have tried to get him back. I mean, the same way Dortmund got back, say Kagawa and Nuri Shaheen after they did a Fabregas um, at that club, but. The way Fabregas talks about Arsenal is a bit, um, you know, the lady doth protest too much, isn't it? I mean, that did you see the interview that he did after the Manchester? It was ridiculous. It was um, talking about the, you know, how great. Oh, now I now I understand how difficult it was for teams to play against Arsenal when I was in there. It's it, impossible to get the ball off these it, guys. He's it, very nice about it. It was so contrived. It actually took you a few seconds to work out what the hell he was talking about. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds a bit like somebody talking about their ex-girlfriend and saying, oh, yeah, they were great for me, but, you know, it, it just, just didn't work out between us or something like that. And, you know, it's it, it's not it's not you, it's me type of thing. And, you know, it, it, it was just a... It was strange because those words from Fabregas were about the only nice words exchanged between the two clubs mm. during that occasion. Um, I mean, I suppose he thinks he has to say that. I, 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 and, you know, he was booed by the fans at the start of the game, but by the end of it, you know, it, it, players move on in football. Um, some fans can't get a grip, grip of that. I, I, I honestly don't think... I mean, you, you mentioned Dortmund with... Shaheen and Kagawa, but there aren't many players that go back to their clubs, and there aren't many players that go back to their clubs and prosper. Is one of the things. I mean, never go back is a big uh, motto in football. Um, I, 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 for, for Fabregas's career to progress beyond what was something of a false start at Barcelona, then he had to go and do something different rather than go back just to be loved at a club. Uh, I wondered how uh, Arsene Wenger came across when he when he spoke to the media. I mean, I only saw what he said to television. It was clear that he was um, he was pretty angry. He he wasn't going to be apologetic about anything. He wasn't going to pretend um, that his feelings about Jose Mourinho were anything other than hatred and contempt. Um, did he was, was he any more open uh, when he spoke to the newspaper journalists? Oh, there's no sign of rapprochement at all. No, I mean the, the funny thing is he won't even mention Mourinho's name. Uh, I mean, what was the quote? It was something you know. I was trying to get from A to B, and somebody and, got in my way. <laughs> and somebody got in my way. Uh, and then you know, I don't listen to a word that he says, which was a, yeah, that's a good quote there, isn't it? Um, yeah, he just won't even acknowledge Mourinho's existence. Uh, uh, by name, it's 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 strange, isn't it? A guy of sixty four, sixty five year, years old is now, you know, he's he's very set in his ways. I mean, I'm reminded of, I mean, Harry Redknapp said this a few years ago about Benga, you know, that when he first arrived in football, he was, you know, cool, calm, and collected. And I think the words were like, now he's as mental as the rest of us. And uh, that, and he, the problem is with Benga, I suppose that in a certain sense, in doing what he did in pushing Mourinho, being more demonstrative in that incident. He did lose the moral high ground a little bit. Um, but, I mean, a few of us were discussing this. We wondered if this was maybe premeditated. Um, it was Wenger's chance to show that he refused to be bullied by Chelsea, as he has been so often in the last 10 years. Um, it didn't work. Uh, but I do think, actually, that Arsenal showed much more fight, uh, much more hunger for the battle than they did in those games, than that was certainly the, the game back in March. Yeah, but is that part of the issue? Because you say there that, uh, that that theory that Wenger wanted to show that he's not afraid of Jose Mourinho, essentially. I mean, what he really needs to do is find a way for his team to beat Jose Mourinho's team. And we've gotten to a point now where a 2-0 victory is greeted with mild praise for Arsenal for actually the fight that they put up. We're talking about two teams who weren't a million miles off each other, two of the best four teams in England. Yet it seems that, I don't know, maybe is Mourinho, is Wenger, I should say, building up Mourinho too much in his own head and building up Chelsea too much in his own head. And is that becoming counterproductive for his team? Or are Chelsea just better than Arsenal? Well, I think that there are certain managers, certain approaches that can get the better of Arsenal. Um, I mean, Alex Ferguson mentioned it in his autobiography. I mean, the, you know, the the fact that you can get at Arsenal, there was a way that you, if you intercepted a play and hit them on the break, you could do that. Mourinho has a different way of doing that. Um, I mean, the thing is, what happens in games between Chelsea and Arsenal when, when Mourinho is involved is that Arsenal tend to ratchet up their commitments, their, uh, you know, the, the, the tackles are flying in and all that type of thing. But for them, that, that involves a loss of control, whereas Chelsea, uh, certainly under Mourinho, have always got that cynical side to them, which means that the, the little fouls to stop players getting away, um, the nudges here and there, they're all part of the plan anyway, whereas Arsenal's way of getting involved in that type of battle, mm. it's not in their nature to do it, and therefore they're out of a comfort zone and that's when they came a bit unstuck yesterday. I mean, Callum Chambers had already been booked. 
so he cannot stop Hazard in his tracks. That leaves Koscielny exposed. And the same goes for the goal that Costa scored. You know, they, they, they'd lose control in midfield. Fabregas is able to chip through. Um, ultimately, to play against Chelsea, Mourinho's team, um, which is very, very difficult, um, you know, going back to 10 years ago, um, the way to do it was almost to hang on for dear life and score uh, on, the, on the break. I remember Manchester City doing it when Nicholas Inelka scored. Um Arsenal aren't a team that can do that. They're a team totally unsuited to playing against Mourinho's Chelsea. Mm -hmm. um, just a other issue that came out of the game yesterday was that Thibaut Courtois was injured in the first half. This is an interesting uh, situation because Courtois was injured in a tackle with, uh, with Sanchez, I think, um, took a sort of blow to the head, uh, immediately sank to the turf and uh, was seen to by the doctors at some length, then played for another 12 minutes before... Uh, stumbling off with concussion. Um, I thought the most interesting part of this was that a few minutes later uh, on television, Jeff Shreves is reporting that Chelsea are saying uh, they've adhered to all the uh, regulations surrounding head injuries because Dr. Eva Carnero, yes, that's Dr. Eva Carnero, gave Petr Cech the all clear. I just thought it was a bit unusual to hear a, a named <laughs> individual from the staff being... Uh, being uh, having the finger pointed on on television in, in that way, how what was the fallout from all that? Well, I suppose the Eva Canero thing is that she's actually you know a bit of a name, isn't she? Uh, maybe Jeff likes saying your name. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, the fallout from that it, it was interesting. At half time, uh, there was a bit of a huddle around Chelsea's press guy, asking how uh, Courtois was. Um, and a few people going over the regulations. Um, during the press conference itself, Mourinho seemed to want to get that part of the question over with as quickly as possible. Um, it reminded me a little of the AVB thing, though in this case, Mourinho didn't really commit himself to anything, unlike uh, Andre Villas-Boas did last year. Now, the thing is about concussion... Um, at the time of the Hugo Lloris incident last year, I did a sort of fairly lengthy investigation into this. And the, the, the one thing that stood out to me was that if somebody's not unconscious, the chances of them being concussed are 99%. Now, it was clear to me from my vantage point, which is just behind the dugout, that he had been out cold for if only a few brief seconds at that point that somebody concussed. Uh, when I spoke to experts about it, the view was pretty much if they can cuss, they should come off the field. Um, and there is this idea that FIFA, considering the, that there is an independent doctor by pitch side that would investigate this, that didn't happen. That isn't happening at the moment. Um, and there is a possibility, as uh, you know, as, as, as being pointed out quite publicly, as, as you know, as, as, as he accepted that it, the, the risk of concussion is when you sustain a second injury. And Courtois playing in goals could have sustained that. Now, I was chatting to a um, somebody that knows Courtois quite well, and the news after the game was that everything was okay, and that the Belgian doctors, the Belgian national team doctors, were pretty satisfied that it was okay. I mean, there was the blood that was pouring down uh, the side of the face, a little trickle of blood, I should say. Um, that was something. That was just a sort of uh, you know a flesh wound or something like that. It looked pretty horrific. Um, but I think he's going to be okay. But um, the concussion debate is one that will continue to rage on. Yep. John, this is something we'll talk about again, I'm sure, pretty soon. But for the time being, thanks very much. Great. Cheers. Just checking the latest on Courtois there uh, in terms of the Belgium Belgian games that he has coming up. Um, see, they're playing on door on Thursday, so that's an easy one to rest him for. There's yeah. no real moral quandary they to be wrestled with there. Probably get away with using Mignolet in that one. Then they've got Bosnia on the Monday. So that's the one where they have to uh, mm. have, have a little think about uh, are there any post-concussive issues or not. I mean, if there were any, he'd be stood down immediately, but we see the way football works. Uh, he really shouldn't have been playing at all after he suffered the injury. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you you kind of wish that they would. You know, they've got, them. they've got... I mean, you know, I'm trying to think of their other goalkeeper is. I mean, they've got decent players. I'm not suggesting Mignolet is remotely in the same class as, as Thibaut Courtois. But if it's about a guy's long-term issue, long-term yeah. health, let's I just... mean, what, what, hap what if the worst happens? You know, what happens if, if Courtois goes up, Ed and Dzeko catches him with his shoulder, lights out? Is that, uh, 
you know, is that not something also worth we're thinking about? I mean, in this occasion, it, it probably would actually be best to uh, to rest them. And it would certainly be a bit of an example as well to Mourinho, a manager who, <laughs> you know, we all know what Jose Mourinho would do. Uh, you know, if he if he felt he needed Thibaut Courtois for that game, but you know he was still in that sort of range after we know we know what Mourinho would do, and maybe Belgium doing doing that standing him down for that game would uh, send the right message. John made the point about the match being played on Chelsea's terms, uh, and yeah, ha- if you're Arsenal, maybe you have to do it to a certain extent. You, you do have to front up physically and all those kind of things. But it, I was quite reminded of Eamon O'Shea, the tip hurling manager after the All Ireland final. He said, "Look, you know, certainly with hurling." If you play a match on one team's terms, that's the team that wins, and that's what happened today. In the that was the replay against Kilkenny, whereas maybe he was played a little more in tips terms the first time around, which is a fair point. It's it's the manager's challenge, especially against a really well organized team, yeah. to find a way not to play their game. And Arsenal didn't quite find that, even though they were better than the last time. Mourinho has never, or, or Wenger has never managed to figure out how to do it. How can you beat this Chelsea battle tor- tortoise, uh, this spiny creature covered in? Thick armor, um, you know, which which clanks towards you remorselessly with this uh, free flowing passing one two football. He's never figured it out. I mean, literally, has never beaten Mourinho. Was it, is it twelve matches? Which now? is amazing when you think about it. I, I, I know Chelsea at the moment are better, but over those years, Chelsea have been better. They've been winning leagues a lot of those times. But we're talking about the be- two of the best few teams, as I mentioned in the interview. There, we're not talking about Wenger with uh, yeah, hodgepodge bunch of. Lads, sixth place in the league. These no. are these are teams should be able to challenge them. No, beat I mean, Chelsea occasionally. In the beginning, I mean, it was the it, it was, was the invincible team. Yeah, yeah. That was the that was the team that, that they were the champions when Mourinho arrived in his first season. So he's never managed to figure it out. Now the thing that it's a good point I think about playing on one team's terms, uh, and the point is that you got to f- try and find a way to force the teams to play on your terms. I mean, you know, you talk you you saw Phil Neville last night, I and mean, he was just contemptuous of Arsenal. He's another one, he's one of these Man United players who had a lot of luck against Arsenal. No, I don't mean luck. I mean a lot of joy, a lot of wins, mm. um, because they figured out at some point. Well, hang on a second. We we just need to speed the game up, make the game rough, and they're just going to wilt. And this is literally what they did time and time again. Arsenal never managed to figure out how to how to change that. Um, I mean. Mourinho is, is, a, is a master at doing that, can can play the game in a number of different ways. Everybody from Barcelona, who are a much better footballing side than Arsenal now are, he managed to find, find a way to frustrate those guys. Um, but also, I mean, the one that he struggled with, actually, is teams that play a bit like his own team. Yeah. His, his the, the two battle tortoises against each other often find a way, find it difficult to actually hurt each other. They just sort of sit there on the ground, next, eyeing each other menacingly, but actually incapable of of causing any injury to the other to the other Manuel Vett is a PhD researcher at King's College London researching economics and politics of Soviet and post-Soviet football he's a contributor also to footballgrad.com and the reason I tell you all this is that Manuel joins us now to talk about the Russian World Cup 2018 Manuel we teed this up a little earlier on uh, most of the narrative around this certainly in this part of the world over the last couple of years has been whether or not Russia may be stripped of it what's going to go on there but it seems as though really the the big problem, uh, certainly within Russia, is going to be how much this is going to cost. This is starting to look really expensive. Yeah, the tournament is going to be, I think it's going to be very expensive. I don't know if you would, can really call it a punishment. That's something that um, Football Grad actually suggested in one of the articles written earlier by my colleague, David McArdle. Um, the, the matter of fact is that these tournaments have gotten increasingly more and more and more expensive, that you are at the center of world attention, that really every kind of political slip um, is going to hurt you in the, the build-up and during the tournament. So perhaps punishment is the wrong word, but um, it is something that really puts a, a country under a lot of pressure. I mean, the precedent is obviously the Sochi Olympics, which rose in cost from 12 to $50 billion dollars. Um, which is which is really amazing, but what maybe you can explain to us the the actual mechanism by which an overrun on that scale? I don't know if you can even call that an overrun. Uh, how does that actually happen? <laughs> That's well, how it happened in Sochi is very simple: is that um, projects got delayed so far that the Russian government intervened, and they created um, a state-run company called Olympstroy, which means Olympic Construction that sort of bundled all companies and every oligarch that was involved in the, in the project. And it was sort of 
um, what happened is that they said, okay, we have to get this finished no matter what. And it has to be the greatest Olympics no matter what because everyone is watching us. So, you know, the government was just willing to pay whatever it cost. And that's how costs exploded because oligarchs and construction companies were saying, okay, well, listen, you want to have this finished in six months, it will cost you this and this much. And the checks were just signed. It was a way of just signing blank checks without thinking about the actual finan the financial costs of it all. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, the Russian government does have some tools at its disposal, which you would imagine would help to keep costs down. I mean, for instance... Um, you've written about the fact that the Luzhniki uh, Stadium in uh, in Moscow, which hosted the Champions League final, Ireland played there a couple of years ago, um, was 58% owned by a guy called Vladimir Leshin. Now, this is a big stadium, a really big, you know, an Olympic stadium. Uh, and he was forced to sell his 58% share to the government for $10 million, which isn't a lot of money. You, you would have thought if the government can get things done like that, then it should be able to keep costs down um, across the board. You know, yes and no. Um, I think what people forget is that, yes, the Olympics were really expensive, and that's very extraordinary that they were that expensive, but Russia has the funds um, to pay that kind of money. And so I think that, in, in a sense, during the Olympics, they didn't really care how much it costs, and they were perhaps even surprised themselves when they saw that final bill. Bill, um, are, are there mechanisms in place to make things happen? Yes, there are. But it depends really who you're talking to or who you're operating with. Alation wasn't really in a strong power situation as he wasn't one of the big oligarchs. So it really depends uh, from situation to situation. The uh, organizers of the London Olympics talked for a long time before about the legacy. And this is their big word that they used during, before, during and after what has the legacy been of the Sochi Olympics? Has, have there been many positive spin-offs for all that money? You know, when you talk to um, athletes that went there and when you talk to Russian athletes, they all mention the positives and, um, you know, how beautiful the games were organized and how well it was done once, once they were there and once everything was running. I think at this point it's really difficult to say what the legacy of Sochi is going to be because it's, it's been just a few months, right? Um, that said, you know, they're going to host the World Cup there. They're going to have Formula One racing there. They, got, they now have a professional hockey team there. And I, I gather in the long run, they will also have a professional football club there as well. So it's really tough to say what the long-term legacy of the Sochi Olympics will be. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, you know, I mean, you did say that Russia has the funds, but, you know, nobody can really afford to waste tens of billions of dollars uh, and expect that to be um, to be something that isn't felt down the line. I mean, it seems to me that that there must have been some cost uh, that Russia must have paid a price besides the fifty billion uh, for for how much this thing costs. Yeah, and it did. I mean, the social costs of it is enormous when you think about what you can do with that kind of money. Um, they they had to cut um, regional fundings or. Um, you know, cost cutting in um, in a whole bunch of provinces that really needed the money. Um, so, you know, it could have been a lot cheaper, and you could have probably done a lot of very very different things with that kind of money that would have benefited a lot of different people in in Russia. Yeah, I mean, these things always end up costing more than they say they're going to cost. Um, you know, the World Cup in Brazil ended up running over considerably. Social Olympics, we've mentioned, costs, you know, more than four times what it was supposed to cost. If the World Cup was to overrun in cost by the same sort of multiplier as Sochi, it will end up costing around about $80 billion, um, which is a whole lot of money to spend on, on anything uh, especially something that's over after a month. Now, what I wonder is, we saw in Brazil that uh, this became the focus for uh, opposition to the to the Brazilian government. People were angry that, that all this money was being wasted and the World Cup became a sort of lightning rod for that kind of uh, the anger throughout the country. Uh, is the Russian government concerned that if they you know spend a, an almost uh, you know infinite amount of money on the World Cup, that that might create a similar um, backlash in terms of protests in Russia? 
Yeah, I think they they are. Um, so I think that you will see, you will probably see that this World Cup is not going to explode in costs like the Social Olympics did, because the Olympics are very isolated. It's um, an event in one city. In this case, in a city that is um, very far away from any kind of political movement in Russia. Whereas the World Cup is going to be in all the big cities in Russia, right? So you will have um, a lot bigger social impact. And um, places like Moscow and St. Petersburg that, you know, if there's any kind of opposition in Russia, that's the places where they are. Um, so I think that they're going to be a lot more cautious about how they're going to spend money and how they're going to approach the whole subject of uh, preparing for the World Cup. Well, in that, in that case, then, Manuel, I'm going to put you on the spot. How much do you think it's going to overrun by? I mean, if they say it's going to cost 18 to 20 billion, the true figure will be? The true figure will be a lot more. <laughs> now, you got to tell me how much um, more. On the spot. Uh, it's really hard to say, but I find 20 billion very optimistic, to be honest with you. Um, because that's that covers the costs of the stadiums, doesn't it? And they have to do so much more. I mean, I've been on these uh, fancy trains that they have, the subsum, the high-speed trains that connect uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, and they want to connect all the World Cup cities with those trains. And that's going to cost. That It's just going to cost a lot of money. So, you know, it really... I mean, I don't even believe that the Brazil World Cup was, uh, I think the final figure was $14 billion. I don't even believe that amount. I think that's not even true. Yeah, but we're going to, no matter how hard we push it, you're not going to give us a final figure, Manuel, but that's fine. No, I, I mean, you know, this, the thing is, it's, it's impossible to put a final yeah. figure on it because in, in Sochi, you saw that the, the final figure was 54 billion euros, if I remember correctly. The thing is, what is entailed in that kind of money. In the Olympics, you say any kind of infrastructure project, right? Whereas in the World Cup, often the final figure is on these stadiums, which is misleading, which is not true, because in the, when you have a World Cup in Russia, you will have to put in roads, you will have to put in rail, you will have to build airports, etc., etc., etc. So the final figure will be probably more than it was at Sochi. So when you, when you say, yeah, okay, um, you mentioned eighty billion, eighty billion dollars earlier. I think that is probably a very realistic sum. Okay, we leave it there, Manuel Vett. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Manuel is a PhD researcher there at King's College in London. He's researching the economics and politics of Soviet and post-Soviet football, Ken. And I'm just wondering how relevant the comparison is to Brazil. If there is a comparison there, do you foresee any scenario whereby the people of Russia will be on the streets? Well, uh, it's it's really difficult to say. I think at this at this kind of remove, because you do, you don't know what's you, a lot of things can happen between uh, now and then. I mean, one thing that does seem really likely to happen is that the cost of this thing is going to balloon. You know, as as Manuel was explaining how things happened with Sochi, I don't see any reason why this isn't is going to be any different because it strikes me that uh, having a situation where the government is just signing blank checks. Um, to enrich a lot of people who've managed to get their noses in the trough suits everybody, mm. apart from arguably the uh, people of Russia. Um, as to how they have, whether they've got any um, capacity sort of to sort of express that unease with the process is something I, d I don't know. I mean, street protests are something which we've seen uh, in a lot of countries, not just Brazil, not just to do with sporting events, in a lot of, a lot of places around the world, uh, including... Uh, the neighbouring uh, country of Russia, Ukraine, uh, and we know what the attitude was of the Russian government to those. So um, I'm not sure if we'd necessarily see the same kind of things happening as, as we saw in Brazil. All right, that's pretty much it from us, but uh, Thursday should be a fun day. As mentioned previously, Roy Keane, you're looking forward to the release of the book, Ken, I'm sure. Yeah, I've... Uh <laughs> you know, Ferguson's in town the same day. Yeah, it's incredible. Fergie turns up in Dublin. He's doing a speech at the conference centre. I think it's for high-powered people. I've, I've got no idea how to go to it. <laughs> no <laughs> was, invite to say it, yeah. No, um, it's management, leadership, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Keane's, uh, Keane's book. No one has any idea what's going to be in it. Um, Paul Lambert seems to have half an idea. Paul Lambert. I think Paul Lambert was having a, was was pulling people's leg a little bit. I mean, what was, Paul Lambert was saying, oh, you know, I think people just need to take cover. This book is coming out. It sounded to me as though he was maybe, <laughs> he was maybe uh, joking. But no newspaper serialization, no advanced copies of the book. Turn up on the day, speed read it, 
that's ask uh, some questions all that kind of stuff the way it's yeah. going to go so, all right. yeah, should be interesting show one is already out there for you today that's the first show we've done this week that uh, featured the a really good rugby chat with Dennis Hickey and Jerry Thornley after Munster's victory over Leinster at the weekend and Oshie McConville was in studio to talk to us about the uh, legacy of Jim McGuinness as Donegal manager thanks very much for listening thank you Ken thank you too and we'll see you later John Delaney he's on about the honesty and tech. I wouldn't take any notice of that man people seem to forget what was going on in that World Cup and that man's on about honesty you cut corners it's got to be all or nothing it's going back to me in 2002 if you prepare for something and it's not right and you're going to get bloody nowhere that definitely comes from the top from the FEI I was one of the players, he didn't, he didn't have the courtesy to ring me. He got interviewed and all he said was, I don't know where he is, he's on the island. He's on the island somewhere, I think. We're all going to be celebrating on the pitch after beating San Marino then. That does worry me, I have to say. But that comes from the top, from the FAI. That'll do attitude has been going on far too long. That'll do, that'll do the Irish. Let's change that attitude towards Irish supporters as well. Listen, they want to see the team winning as well, let's not kid ourselves. I know we're a small country and you listen, we're up against it. But let's not just go along for the sing song every now and again. It happened, it's happened to, it happened to me. It happened to me when I was 17, 18 years of age. When I played France for the years from the 16 or 17. The lads who got ahead of me that night were from Dublin. And the manager that night was from Dublin. I know Steve Sutton's not from Dublin, but a lot of the FBI are. I've been involved in Ireland since I was 15 years of age. And that man didn't have the decency even to make a phone call. Try my hotel room. Yeah, you can laugh. That was the World Cup. You can achieve anything you want, if you believe it. If you don't believe it, and that's coming, like I keep saying, from the FBI or the manager, staff, whatever. And you're going to get nowhere. And you can talk all day, like you're saying, you're saying to talk, the FBI talk. You can talk all you want. I've been talking for the last hundred years. I'm giving you a night court to It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.